Welcome to the Rural Insights Podcast, where we explore rural actions and policies that impact Michigan's Upper Peninsula and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by the Rural Insights Institute, working to ensure that rural citizens and policymakers alike have the information necessary to make good decisions. If you'd like to learn more about Rural Insights, visit ruralinsights.org. Now, here's your host, David Haynes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rural Insights podcast series. And today, we're very pleased to have uh, Don Wartruba with us, uh, who is the executive director of the Michigan Association of School Boards, one of Lansing's um, biggest educational associations and one of the most powerful in the state. Uh, And I'm proud to say Don is a uh, uh, grew up in the in the UP uh, in Kearney, and uh, you can read all about that on uh, our uh, Rural Voices part of uh, on our website. His column is in there. Before we go into educational issues and school boards, Don, how did you wind up in Lansing? You go from Kearney to where to where? Well, thanks for having me. First, David, I appreciate it. Uh, appreciate being able to kind of share uh, with your Rural Insights audience. For me, yeah, I came out of a small school district, Kearney NATO in Southern Menominee or Mid Menominee County, and went to college at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. Um, probably like many kids that were 17 years old in the UP, wanted to get as far away from the UP as I could. Um, now have since in my adulthood realized the um, great things that it offers both to residents and for us that have left uh, the opportunity to come back. But um, I actually did a secondary ed English major for a while in college. I did an internship uh, in Lansing at the Capitol. Uh, Western had a big program in that, and I interned with the Michigan Association of School Boards. And um, I commonly joke that I realized that I could screw up a lot more kids' lives as a lobbyist than I, than I could as a, as a teacher. And um, I, that wasn't my intent, of course, but um, you as a former lobbyist understand that. Yes, sir. Um, and it just, you know, I then changed my major out of education and um, got a job with a state representative uh, out, of we- out of the Western UP, Paul Tosanovich, and um, did that for a few years and moved over to MASB 24 years ago. 24 years already. Well, that's amazing. I I enjoy over all these years of, of meeting people who have moved uh, from here to Lansing. And of course, as you know, over the years, there were people like Dominic Jacob Eddy, who spent a lot of time placing people around from the UP in, in the state civil service and political jobs. Uh, that was one of his goals. And you still meet them in second and third generations of people. That it's very helpful also to the UP. So yeah, I'll give Pat Agliardi was was who I one of my internships and he's who helped get me started in Lansing and I still appreciate that effort recommending me. Well, Paul, Pat is now out of that too. I, he absolutely. We did a uh, I did a video uh, podcast with uh, Pat and Mitch Irwin uh, a few months ago and talked a lot about that. It was really you know, Pat has done a great job. Gags is. Uh, um, worked very hard at that. So, uh, and uh, so did all the UP reps, Paul Sasanovich and others. So, uh, well, okay. Well, I'm glad you're down there and let's uh, get into, into some issues. Um, you know, there's an old saying we heard for years, uh, 
among all of us in public policy and politics that one of the hardest and maybe worst elected jobs around as a school board member, because you're local, you can't go out anywhere where buddy, you know, you can go out for a beer, the Van Gogh's on, on uh, Friday night, and someone's going to come over and talk to you about what well, not the Nagani school board or the Marquette school board or, or something. And it you're doing serious, serious work, um, setting policy, uh, uh, an educational policy for your town, for your city, for your region and it's a very hard job. Uh, right now in the UP, we're having a lot of conversations about masking and school boards are, I hear, are flooded with pro-maskers and anti-maskers. Um, uh, and it, some of them have been pretty hot. Some of them have had to have police stationed there. Um, could you talk about What's going on with school boards around the state on masking and not masking and maybe state policy on it? Yeah, absolutely. It, it is, you know, the last 18 months has, I think, been the roughest time that I have been around on school board members. Uh, you know, with the pandemic, it was, you know, the spring of the year, you're closing down schools. Everybody was. And then it was coming back and deciding, are you going to be open or not open? Masks, of course, were required. And you know, as an organization, we always argue for local control, like let the local boards know, um, let let them do their job and decide what their local community um, wants for their kids and for their schools. And on the flip side of that this year, what we're seeing, particularly without a state mandate, uh, is a lot of um, decisions being made, maybe not in the public health space, but now in the political space, not R&D political, but the politics, as you mentioned, of people showing up at a board meeting and, you know, the loudest voice wins or how many people are on Facebook beating up the school district or telling the school district what to do. And that has become the hard thing for school board members and superintendents is trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. And um, we don't have experts in public health on school boards. It's not what we do. And that has made it difficult. We've tried to work with uh, public health departments to try to do some guidance. And, and now the struggle for boards is the CDC is recommending masking for school-aged children, whether they're vaccinated or not. The, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services is also recommending this. And recently, Dr. Caldoun has come out and actually said it should be a mandate. Um, even though that's not her call to make, it's either, you know, it's the Department of Health and Human Services. Well, let's put districts in a bad spot. You've got a bunch of statewide and national public health experts saying you should have masks on your kids. And in a lot of communities, and I think the UP and rural areas particularly, um, you're getting a lot of pushback from, from voters that show up at board meetings. Yet when you look at counties in the UP, you've got some, you know, high spread counties, uh, at least new numbers coming in are showing spread in that area, lower vaccination rates than other parts of the state. Um, but the UP is not um, like, they're not alone. This is happening in every community across the state of Michigan. Doesn't matter if it's rural or urban. Um, this is a real discussion that they're all facing. What, what's going on, uh, you and I, uh, before this, uh, that we did this session, talked a little about what Allegan County downstate is a, a rural area becoming more metropolitan as years go by, but certainly it has a rural component and Grand Traverse. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those rural areas? 
Yeah, it, it's been interesting to watch. Um, in those cases, the local public health departments have stepped in. Uh, we've had that now in three counties in the state um, where they've stepped in and said um, kids that are unable to be vaccinated, so in essence, 12 and under, um, that they should mandatorily wear masks. And they have passed as health departments a mandated mask wearing for kids under that age to protect them. We are seeing with the Delta variant an increase of sickness amongst that age group. And those health departments, Kalamazoo, Allegan, and Genesee, but Allegan, as you said, is a more rural um, county, and they made that decision. On the flip side, in Grand Traverse County recently, their county commission stepped in, and they are prohibiting their health department. Um, and that's a weird space, at least from my perspective, is there you have uh, partisanly elected individuals on the county board stepping in and in essence, telling one of the entities that fund that local health department that have the, the medical expertise, you can't weigh in in this space. Um, and, you know, I, I do think we'll probably see some more counties, particularly for those age under 12. Um, we're seeing districts in different pockets around the state doing that on their own or just masking K-12, um, much like they were last year. And, and part of that is watching what's happening in other states. Um, Indiana, a rural state just to our south, right? Um, they've now seen schools, they didn't do masks, and they've now had to shut down schools for two weeks, right at the beginning of the school year, right after they started, because the numbers have exploded and they go to quarantine and it's, you know, 600 kids quarantine and all of a sudden you don't have enough kids. So I think some of these schools are looking at it and saying, it's how we're going to keep your kid in school through the whole year is, it's inconvenient, but they'll wear, they're going to wear a mask, but they're likely going to stay in school then. Otherwise, without masks, there's a risk that they're going to come in and out, in and out, just like they did last year. Um, and it probably won't work as well this year because there's not as much virtual learning going on. What's the vaccination rate among uh, school-aged children in, in our public schools? What What is the is there a number or, or just? Yeah, the, the, the number for when initially when it went down this, you know, when you went down to age 16, we were uh, around 59%. When you drop down to the 12 to 16 year old, um, I think we're hovering right around 50%. I haven't seen a recent number on that. Um, I think, you know, what happened is right at the end of the school year, they approved that 12 to 16 age group. A number of schools ran vaccination clinics. Um, but then it's been, you know, you go, you got the summers and depending on convenience, whether that group has grown. Now I could see, I haven't heard it, um, but you could see some, maybe some districts running some vaccination clinics when school starts this fall for that age group. And that could push our numbers up pretty quickly in a lot of our areas um, to get that group of kids vaccinated. What, what are some of the differences you're seeing in, uh, in, um, uh rural school districts then facing school board members and metropolitan, let's say, what are, are there, or are they just generally, what are the same issues or? I, I think that the masking thing is the same, like that has become the same. I, I think what we're seeing in urban areas that in most cases uh, is not hitting the um, rural areas is this conversation about critical race theory. And of course, if you're in a rural area, Northern Michigan, particularly, um, you do have Native American populations, but not a large portion of other minorities. And that's become a national movement to, to what they're saying, stop the teaching of something that you're a university guy that 
um, you know, critical race theory is something at a doctoral level that even many colleges don't touch on. Uh, that has blown up much like the masking in some of our, where you've mentioned we've had police presence at board meetings and other things. I think it's kind of a red herring. I don't think there's a, a lot of real to it, but it is an effort that thankfully our rural areas aren't seeing. Um, Alpena Public Schools has become mired in a little bit, uh, which is kind of odd because that's a pretty rural community also. Um, most of the rural areas are really focused on, hey, let's get our kids back to school and um, and moving forward. And, you know, fear from parents, I think, about sports, what happens with sports. Um, I, I host a podcast as well, and I just had Mark Ewell from the High School Athletic Association on talking about, you know, what, what does that look like? And, um, you know, they're kind of full steam ahead right now to um, have it, and um, they're going to leave it up to districts also on the masking of, of the crowd. So like in your, in your area, it's going to be, you know, uh, Marquette public schools can say, Hey, we want all the spectators in a basketball game because that's indoors to wear masking. The high school athletic association is not going to require it, but they're going to let the local venue make that decision. And I would assume that will be a question that comes up different than in a kid setting with schools because of uh, the low number of sicknesses that we've seen, at least in the past in that age group. But we all know what indoor sports is like in the UP, whether it be a hockey arena or a basketball court. Um, there's going to be some schools having that conversation, even if they're not masking with the kids, they might have that conversation about we're putting 300 people in a close proximity next to each other. How do we want to handle that? Yeah, And, I, and you know, we've had some of that in the UP. And I know when I was president of the university, we had the same issue over guns and open uh, carry issues over the years. And uh, we struggle with those like every other community and have worked them out. It seems this is a little harder uh, to get done right now um, because the country is so polarized and therefore we're all polarized. You know, the other question I had, this goes back to even years when I was in Lansing for the Grand Rapids School District. What, what that's a long time ago too. I. Uh, we have now 600 school districts, I think, in Michigan and 294, I think, charter school districts, if you will. They're not called districts, I guess. But so and we've talked for years about consolidation and uh, and in the UP, I think, it's like everywhere else, someone wants to give up their own school board or their own athletic teams. Is that a conversation at all these days or is that a bygone discussion? It isn't much of one, David. You remember the politics that surrounded, you know, even though a school board might take on the challenge and have the discussion in their community, legislatures were always a little nervous about taking that on, although we've seen it in other states and we did it back in the 60s here. Um, it is, it even, it's become even a worse topic to talk about right now because the free market has pushed so far into education I think public ed traditional districts would say, yeah, we will talk about it. Like, it, you know, I can make lots of arguments about, you know, I grew up in a school district and it probably still only has about 280 kids. Like that's not a big district. You could probably have some efficiencies, but on the flip side of that, if there's 200 plus charter schools in the state, many of which are that size or smaller, it's hard to argue that you should close the traditional district when, you, you know, you have the option of somebody opening up the doors of a charter nearby and, Charters aren't prevalent in the UP, but they are there. You have some in the Marquette area. I actually have one down by us in the Kearney area. Um, so it isn't, um, it's out there, but most of it, if it's happening right now, 
Um, it's happening because the communities looked at things and made a decision that it was the right thing to do for, for their region, their communities. More um, to give kids a little more option. If you're a real small district, your options are pretty limited for, for your students. Yeah, 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 that's a big, uh, a legislator from long ago told me one time about this issue of merger of school districts. He said, this is one of those where you won't find a lot of profiles and courage stepping up, no matter what the pros and the cons are, it's one you don't need in your life. So. I don't want to keep you too long, but what about just general an overview of how school funding is going, how school boards are looking at school funding issues and any differences, again, between rural and metropolitan? You know, that is for, for rural areas, I think this year's budget that the legislature and the governor put through, I mean, it was the only budget they passed. State government is still sitting without one. Um, it is the best budget we've seen. They finally took out the, pro the promise of Proposal A um, and closed the gap in school funding from the bottom to the top. There's still you know, roughly 45 districts out there now that raise additional property tax to get some money beyond the max foundation. But this school year now, everybody will be the same. And now the next step that we're actually taking, and there was a, a study done by school folks about four years ago now, the school finance research collaborative is okay. Now we've got a base level of funding. Now let's look at the individual needs of each student. So if you have a poor student that, you know, enters your school district, uh, maybe single parent household, high school education of the parent compared to the dual income, dual educated parent, that kid often will start behind. So now let's start figuring out how much additional money do we need to move that kid along the path so that we can get them to the same place upon graduation? Or do we fund enough on special ed? So now we're actually getting to the meat of the conversation to help the kids that really need it now that we've gotten every district to a base level. And over the next few years, we've got a lot of federal money um, that come out, that's coming out of the COVID and um, three different relief packages have come in that space. And so we have a real opportunity in Michigan to change kind of how we do education, focus more on the kid, um, and more of a you know individualized education for each student and the resources that are needed. Um, I think in the UP and small districts with small pupil counts, um, that individualized stuff is going to make a difference. And one of the other things that um, some of the groups, including MASB, is pushing is let's start looking at transportation again. Um, you know, in the UP, big districts, we spend a lot of money on transportation before the rest of it gets to the classroom. And, you know, I think there are legislators in Lansing that are seeing that and saying, yep, and, and including the governor that are saying, yep, we need to do something in that transportation space. So, um, you know, if you're a district that is, you know, Republic Michigami, that's got a lot of driving to do, that they are getting um, maybe starting to get a similar amount of money into the classroom um, that somebody in a smaller, you know, contained district like a um, you know, a Nagani would have or something like that so that um, they're getting equal dollars going into the classroom and aren't counting the busing side of it. That's a, it, We're a ways off, but I, I feel we're in our best place from a school funding conversation um, better than we have been in, in quite some time. This will also help with the, with the federal child care money to reduce child poverty, I'm assuming, and it helps school districts focus on challenges with uh, food 
food uh, shortages by families and child family poverty, right? These would all be things they could Yes, all of the funding that's come out of the feds this year really opens up that door. Um, We know mental health for kids has become a big issue. They can spend the money in that space. And ideally, they're looking for things because this money won't be here forever. Um, It's like a three-year window. So they don't want to spend money on things that they have to continue paying for five years from now because they won't have the funding. But there's a lot of programs, I think, that they can start, get put in place, um, figure out how to build money for later. Um, but definitely that nutrition space, um, the, you know, pushing into creating programs on poverty, um, you can do a lot in two or three years on literacy or math uh, skills that you couldn't do without the, without that additional funding. And that would really help to bring up again, those low achieving kids. My, my last question is I've been hearing a lot in the UP and I'd be interested to hear whether it's downstate about the, the challenge of mental health services for young people inpatient, that there's no place to go with your young person, uh, high school or younger even, and they need inpatient mental health. The family needs help, the young person needs help. Any discussion in Lansing about this issue of inpatient mental health services for young people? Not, not, not much of one. And, and David, I would say that, that that problem exists everywhere. We've got family, friends, um, that have a struggle with that with one of their children and um, are a- unable to find in- inpatient care. They've been in Michigan, they've been in Wisconsin, they've been in Indiana. Like it, it is a struggle everywhere, not just in rural areas. Um, and we're now even starting to see outpatient mental health in the school setting becoming hard to find. Like there are just not uh, enough mental health professionals to go around, even in the outpatient setting. And, you know, probably in a correlation, uh, although I'm not a scientist to prove it, we also see teen suicide rates increasing. um, And that often has to do with not being able to get the help that they need. And so I wish Lansing, and they've started funding a little bit in the School Aid Act in that space, not for inpatient, but for that school side of things. We just need to really bump that money up over the next handful of years so that we can both hire and actually incent enough people to go into that field. Sometimes it's a shortage of the of the professionals more than it is uh, anything else. Well, Don, I want to thank you and uh, uh, our listeners. Uh, this has been really an educational and it's particularly wonderful to talk to somebody who grew up in a rural school district in the UP and is now leading school policy in the state. Uh, So thank you for spending time with us. This has been really great. And I hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. I I love the UP. I love what you're doing at Rural Insights. And uh, I try to get up there as as much as I can to visit family and uh, both my wife and mine. So um, we keep crossing that bridge as long as it's standing there. Well, I'm glad you're paying the toll. (laughs) Thanks, Don. Appreciate it. Good drive today. You've been listening to the Rural Insights Podcast, brought to you by the Rural Insights Institute, working to ensure that rural citizens and policymakers alike have the information necessary to make good decisions. If you enjoy our content, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. You can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter by visiting ruralinsights.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.